Let's again join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, now in these moments as we turn to contemplate your word, we ask you to speak to us. We need to hear from this ancient text how we ought to live in this modern world. We know that your voice still speaks into our world. Your voice still has words that will challenge and change our hearts. We ask that you would do this now to your honor and glory, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Not sure whether many of you will have uh, taken the opportunity to see it, but uh, recently there has been available a little TV miniseries called Chernobyl. It's filmed in dark and somber colors. It has a haunting soundtrack. And one critic wrote, Chernobyl rivets with a creeping dread that never disappears. And strangely in this drama, the central character is the damaged core of reactor number four. We see people rush to it, some with foolish disregard for self, some in utter fear, and some displaying heroic courage. The destructive threat is the same. The attitudes with which people approach it are different. And many people died as a consequence. Some died relatively quickly and extremely painfully from radiation burns. Others more slowly but surely from cancers caused by their bodies' exposure to harmful radiation. And always once the reality had been grasped that the reactor core was broken, the radiation was loose, the question was always being posed in different ways. What protection, what precautions had to be taken to make an approach toward the reactor in safety? Before this source of unseen power and threat, what would ensure a person's protection? 3,000 years before the calamity at Chernobyl, men were asking a similar question. We find it here in our text this evening, indeed, in, in verse 20. There we read the words of the men of Beth Shemesh. They ask, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Radiation is harmful. The Lord our God is holy. And being carelessly exposed to either is destructive. One temporarily, the other eternally. And we need to to wrestle with these verses, the story we read together from chapter 6. And I want to do so under the title, How Do You Handle Holiness? How do you handle holiness? Last Sunday night we saw how the very weight of the glory, the kavod of of Yahweh's presence among the people of Philistine was, was crushing the very life out of them. They were dying at God's hand. And for seven months the, the cities of, of Philistine were, were, were plagued. First Ashdod, then Gath, then Ekron, one after the other. They struggled against the disciplining hand of God upon them. And they were learning about God's wrath against sin. 
They were learning about God's unapproachable holiness. They were learning about the need for atonement for sin. But sadly, we see they fail their theology exam. And we see here in verse 2 of our text, the question being asked by the Philistine rulers. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? How will we handle holiness? And their conclusion, their answer to their great problem is, send it away. Send it away. The power of God is at work among them. And their foolish decision is that the very best thing that they can do in that circumstance is to get rid of the ark. Send it away. You're familiar with the story in Mark's gospel, the fifth chapter. Chapter 4 tells the story of how Jesus and the disciples have have traversed the Sea of Galilee. They have passed through this terrifying storm which the disciples themselves believed would take their lives. But with Jesus' miraculous intervention, the, the storm is calm. They arrive safe on the far side, the shore. And, and you can almost picture these 12 disciples struggling out of the boat and, and rushing on to the land. And, and they'll almost get down and kiss it. So glad to be back on solid ground. And immediately, before they can even catch their breath, this horrifying scene unfolds, this Man, naked, screaming, wounded, with terrible self-inflicted wounds, comes rushing towards him, perhaps the remnants of chains dangling from his ankles and wrists. And he rushes before them and falls in front of Jesus. And that negotiation takes place. And the demons are uh, sent from him and and into the herd of of pigs grazing on the hillside. And immediately they rush down the hillside and are drowned in the sea. The sensational news of all that has unfolded is quickly conveyed by those tending the, the pigs with the local village. And all the people come out. And they see this man now utterly transformed, as we know, in his right mind and clothes. And they understand something powerful has happened. Something significant has taken place. Something holy is in their presence. We read those terrible words, Mark 5 verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. How did they handle holiness? Send it away. Send it away. Holiness is horrifying to unholy people. And you know, that's the choice. Send it away, the choice of the world today. Many people, when they get any glimpse, any inkling of the holiness of God, they they want rid of it. Send it away. It's too disturbing, too disruptive. Life will not be able to carry on normal if God's holiness is breaking in. They're, They're comfortable in their sin. They're they're relaxed in their darkness. And they understand that if God breaks in in his holiness, all that must go. They can't live as they're living in the presence of purity and power. Send it away. So they drown out God's voice. They, They rush to their petty entertainments. They preoccupy their every moment with all kinds of activity, busyness, noise. Don't let God's voice speak into my life. Don't let me encounter holiness. 
even at the cost of their very souls. Send it away. Send it away. We read this morning words familiar to you, John 3, 19, 20. This is the judgment, the light, the, the holiness of God has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. How do we handle holiness? Send it away. And the Philistines, they make this choice. And they ask with their decision a question. With what shall we send it? And some of you immediately sing it to yourself, dear Liza, dear Liza. With what shall we send it? We have to add something. There's something else has to be done. And, and in the middle of this little text, there's a, a reflection in the words of, uh, of the Exodus story. Something's going. Uh, God's people broke free from slavery in Egypt. God is breaking out of his uh, part-time captivity in Philistine. Send it with a sacrifice. Don't let them go empty-handed. Send God on his way with a sacrifice. Verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. One lesson, at least in this theological uh, semester that they had spent these seven months with God in their presence. One thing they had learned, verse 11 of chapter 5, that God is heavy and you dare not treat him lightly. God is heavy. And they have some limited understanding of what God is doing among them and how they ought to respond. And they recognized that they had to make some kind of offering to God, and that the offering they were to make to God had some way to relate to the punishment that God had brought upon them, the burden that they had to endure. So again, look at verses 4 and 5. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. So here we see they make a response and they are part right. They're right in the first part but wrong in the second part. They, they offer what Gordon Keating in his commentary calls grotesque golden trinket. You see, the people had experienced this illness, this unidentified illness in their body. Tumors were growing on them. And rats or mice were, were running riot in their land. And some commentators had guessed that the bubonic plague had struck them. Many were dying. And so they, they take these most outward evident symbols of God's judgment upon them and they, they represent them in the most precious material they can think of. They make golden mice and golden tumors. And it just seems so strange. And while they, they had some measure of understanding, they failed to grasp fully that, that, that central principle. You've heard of homeopathy. Homeopathy is, by definition of that word, the idea that like cures like. And that's what they were trying to do. They were thinking, like cures like, well, our problem is tumors and, and mice. Let's send golden tumors and mice. 
They were close, but they were wrong. Because their greatest problem was not disease. Their greatest problem was death. And because of this, the only appropriate offering to make in return for all the death that was occurring around them was the giving of a life. We know well, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. If sin is to be atoned for, life has to be given. Blood, the symbol of life, has to be shed. There's nothing else that's good enough. And we discover then, as the story unfolds, that the nature of their problem was that they were fearful, but they were not faithful. Fearful, but not faithful. For all the horror that had befallen upon them due to the presence and power of God at work in their midst, they really didn't believe. So they hatch this plan, something akin to Gideon's fleece, Judges 6. And this was going to be the means whereby they would ascertain, was this really God's hand upon them? Or was this merely coincidental? They brought the ark and just so happened at that very time, suddenly a plague of rats and mice came upon them. Is that the truth? No, they want to know. So here's the great plan they had. They take nursing cows from their calves and they harness these two cows that have never been under a yoke and place the ark of the Lord with these golden sacrifices in a box in a cart attached. And hopefully you understand what's meant to happen. Under normal circumstances, nursing cows will not leave their calves. And under normal circumstances, cows that have never been yoked to pull will not cooperate easily. Indeed, without the use of some sort of whip or force, they will never go where you want them to go. So we see the outcome, verse 12. The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So they had this great plan and, pardon the pun, but lo and behold, it works exactly as they thought it might not. The cows unerringly and contentedly make their way up the road and they make their way back to Israel. God reveals his power to the leaders of Philistine and still they harden their hearts. Still they don't believe. Still they were not changed. In response to this revelation, they closed their hearts. They believed that. They had dispensed with God. They they had gotten rid of him so their, their problem was solved. They needn't worry about God anymore. So our story moves to act two. And again, the same question is asked, how do we handle holiness? The people of Beth Shemesh respond to the arrival of the ark of God in their midst. Two things, exactly the same two things as happened previously, only in a different order, in a mirrored order, as Hebrew stories often are. They sacrifice Yes, they have greater wisdom than their Philistine compatriots. They, they understand that as uh, God has come in the presence of his ark among them, they, they, they need Levites to carry this. They, they can't move it in any other way. So Levites are called and they lift the ark from the cart. 
and they make what is largely an appropriate sacrifice, burning the wood of the cart and using burnt offerings. When blood was shed, life was given. Although they used female sacrifices when God's word declares that male ought to be used. And everything seems to be really going quite well with the return of the ark to Beth Shemesh until in my Bible you turn the page. And you turn the page and on the top of my page it says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. It's a little textual note here. Maybe you have a footnote in your Bible, but uh, in the Hebrew text, there are two numbers that sit side by side. There's 50,000 and 70, and we're not too sure what to make of the two numbers. There's no explanation, just two numbers, 50,000 and 70. Perhaps it was that there was 50,000 people there, and out of them, 70 were killed. We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. All we know is that a lot of people died. Many people died. They offered a sacrifice, but they did not give the appropriate respect to the holiness of God in their midst. The 18th century philosopher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards wrote, The absence of godly fear signifies a lack of knowledge of God. They they, they may have known more than the Philistines. They may have had a better stab at it, but it still fell short. The the presence of God did not bring a godly fear in their hearts. They did not rightly respond to his holy presence in their midst. God is an equal opportunity avenger. He kills Philistines. He kills Israelites. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Treat God lightly. Disregard his holiness. And it will not go well for you. You will die. So once again, the question is asked, how do we handle holiness? And the same answer is given by these Israelites of Beth Shemesh as had first been given by the Philistines. What do they say? Send it away. Send it away. Verse 20 in the New English Bible puts it like this. It says, no one is safe in the presence of the Lord, this holy God. To whom can we send it to be rid of him? Send it away. Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. For 20 years, the symbol of God's presence, that was meant to be at the very heart of God's community, was up in this little backwater of Kiriath-Jerim. And these people of Beth Shemesh, when the ark had come to them, it began with a great rejoicing and it ends with a great rejection. The answer to the holiness of God in the midst of these people was send it away. It's not safe, send it away. The challenge for us this evening as we try to apply this text to our lives is to answer the question, how Do you, how do I handle holiness? Two simple things. As I said already, holiness is horrifying to unholy people. 
Holiness is horrifying to unholy people. If your heart is set on rebelling against God, disdaining his majesty, casting off his authority, then his holiness horrifies you. You want to flee from it or die before it. Next Sunday morning, God willing, we'll gather here to share in the Lord's Supper. We call this uh, communion. And it's worth noting that in the very gifted, very go-ahead, very uh, powerful spiritually in their spiritual gifts and ministry together, the church of Corinth, things were happening. With all those gifted, powerful, able people, some of those people disdained the holiness of God. And they came to the Lord's Supper in an, an appropriate way. For some, it was an excuse for drunkenness and gluttonous behavior. And do you know how Paul writes to them? First Corinthians eleven twenty nine thirty. Paul says, For anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. People in the church of Corinth died because they did not respect the holiness of God. They did not rightly honor him. They came carelessly before holy things. Holiness is horrifying to unholy people. It it kills them. So what about us? We need to learn that holiness is humbling to heavenly people. Holiness is humbling to heavenly people. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin comments, he says, Hence that dread and terror by which holy men of old trembled before God, as Scripture uniformly relates. He's saying this, he said, In the presence of God's holiness, God's servants tremble. They are humbled in his presence. And consequently, they are blessed. Or as Jared Wilson puts it, you can't grow in holiness and holier than thyness at the same time. Encountering holiness must lead you to humility. Of all the attributes of God mentioned in the scripture, Holiness is the only one that's mentioned in the superlative. You've heard this before, some of you at least, and apologies for this time in a sermon on a Sunday evening to give you a Hebrew grammar lesson. But in Hebrew grammar, the adjective, in the adjective, the descriptive word is used once. The comparative, the word is used twice. And the superlative, the word is used three times. So the example when the word it says holy, that's the adjective. When it says holy, holy, that is the comparative, holier. And when it says holy, 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 that is the superlative, holiest. And you see, the only description of God that's ever used in the superlative is as being holy. God is love, yes. But he's never love, love, love. That's the Beatles. But God is holy, holy, holy. 
God is utterly holy. And so you remember that Isaiah has this amazing encounter in chapter 6 of God's holiness. And the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And immediately Isaiah gets it. And immediately he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. I am lost. I am a dead man. Isaiah recognized his sinfulness in the presence of God's holiness. And immediately he repents. And if you know the context of that that, that message, immediately before Isaiah chapter 5, he had preached this blistering sermon calling woe upon everybody else. Left, right and center, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he meets God. He meets God in his utter holiness. And understands that he deserves judgment. And he's repentant, he's humbled. Not woe is you, woe is me, for I am a sinner. Unclean lips. When on the far side of the desert, the one-time prince of Egypt, Moses, encounters a bush that is burning. And he suddenly hears God God speak to him and he realizes all that's transpiring. And he, he recognizes that this is a holy place He kicks off his sandals. Numbers 12 verse 3 tells us that Moses becomes the most humble man on the face of the earth. And when Job finally gets his answer, at the end of all that toing and froing in the, the book that bears his name, he had so longed to make his case before God. He so desired to, to be able to stand up to God and said, it's not fair. And, and when God reveals himself in all his holiness, Job puts his hand over his mouth. You see, we have a hole in our holiness. And rather than send the holy presence of God from us, we must run to him in in repentance and make the appropriate sacrifice to him for our sinfulness. And we began our service with that uh, Psalm 51 quotation where David suddenly becomes aware that he is a sinner. Suddenly he becomes aware of the heinous nature of the sins that he's committed. And he says to God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When David understands God's holiness, sees his sinfulness, his heart is broken and he repents before God. So what is the status of God's people as they stand before him? How do we handle holiness? Well, this was, this was Martin Luther's problem. He tried to set himself right with God. And, and in his quest to answer that problem, he recognized finally the issue that sparked our reformation. He came to understand that the cross of Jesus Christ was the only suitable sacrifice that could be made. That we in no way, through anything that we could ever do, could make ourselves right before God. We have no sacrifice to bring to him. But he, he gives us the unblemished holy lamb. The one who propitiates, who who deals with God's anger at our sin and our sin problem. 
And all those who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are justified, set right with God. And we are being, even now, sanctified. And one day we will be glorified.